This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Jeopardy. I like Jeopardy. Jeopardy is the only show that I make a point to watch just about every day. My wife and I watch it. Even Carmine watches it, even though he doesn't really understand the clues. And I have to tell you, I I, I always have my strong points and my weak points. For instance, uh, yesterday there was a category, RSVP to my political party. And I knew that I was going to be the only person in my household that got every single one of those clues. And that was in Double Jeopardy, by the way, where there are greater totals. Uh, If there's ever a question about uh, the New York Mets or classic baseball, I know I'm getting all those. I know my, uh, obviously, any questions related to the New York area, I know I'm getting those. But it's a funny thing that's happened with me over the last two years. Over the last two years, all of a sudden, when there are categories that have to do with space, planets, astronomy, or anything having to do with celestial bodies, all of a sudden these used to be categories that I'd get maybe half the questions correct, come up with the correct response maybe two-thirds of the time. And over the last two years, I have found myself getting nine out of ten of these questions correct in category after category having to do with space. And I I have not been moonlighting as an astronomy student in my spare time, which is non-existent. However, I have benefited over the course of the last two years from my conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, and I suspect you have as well. If you're a new listener to our show and you have not yet heard Dr. Sky, then buckle up. Because for the next hour, we are going to take you on a journey about what's happening in the stars. Maybe you'll never get to go to space. In fact, chances are you probably won't. But you'll know a bit more about what's going on in space because not only does Steve Cates have a great great voice, but he's got a great mind, and he's got a way of explaining things in a manner that even laymen like me can understand. He is a veteran TV and radio broadcaster, an edutainer who knows all about a whole bunch of subjects, including astronomy and space, and he's uh, now officially a contributor to WABC in New York, and you can check out his podcast at WABCradio.com. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Happy Thanksgiving Eve. Well, happy Thanksgiving Eve to you, Frank, and thank you very much for the introduction. Always a pleasure to be on the other side of midnight. And so much going on in these realms, astronomy, space, even aviation, and even weather. So You, you, you said it. You said it. And if people have questions, by the way, they can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let's begin with uh, one of the most exciting things that happened last week. And the only thing that was missing from our broadcast when we carried this live was we didn't have you to give us live commentary and live play-by-play. I, was, I sort of had to struggle to make it sound like I knew something about what was going on, and that is the launch of Artemis 1. What is yeah. Artemis 1? What happened last week? Where is Artemis now? Well, it's interesting, Frank. Let's go back in the time capsule, because Artemis 1, the most powerful rocket ever launched by humans to date, had a long track record of, you know, slow track record, I should say, of actually getting up to getting into space. Lots of problems on the ground, hydrogen leaks, blah, 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 dot, dot, dot. But it's so interesting. We all watch this you know, launch, and it's so incredible because let's go back in time. This is a nighttime launch. I was amazed that they would even do this at night. I would think, well, old school, what? You want to see everything? You need daylight? You want to watch the rocket? We haven't had a rocket like this, a rocket launch, since Apollo 17 back in 1972, a night launch, in which people described it as extremely bright, lit up the sky like the sun. Actually, the ground rumbled. It sounded, felt like there was an earthquake when the rocket took off. So here's this rocket. It gets off and clears the big tower, 39B, and it did some damage to launch pad 39B. We'll talk about that, too. But as it goes out into space, some interesting photographers out there, really talented individuals from the press corps, they caught some amazing, iconic pictures of the rocket moving up, and it so happened to be right in the same frame as the moon in the sky, its destination. So lo and behold, Artemis, eight and a half million pounds of thrust, launches off that launch pad. 
and it's powered by these four RS-25 rockets, chemical rockets, and two rather extended from the space shuttle days, large solid rocket motors. And let's describe the fuel of the solid rocket motors. It's like the back of a pencil, like an eraser-type material, not made of rubber. But once you light those, you can't shut them off. So you see this rocket moving out in this big plume, actually almost twice the length of the rocket. And the rocket's 322 feet long. So the purpose of this big rocket, you have to get this ability to launch something into space to get it out of Earth's orbit, which now, this Orion spacecraft, that's what's headed to the moon, has gone to the moon. And yesterday, I don't know, Frank, if you got to see some of these most amazing videos I was watching this from home on a large screen TV through the NASA channel, and I hope everybody got an experience or a chance to see it. If not, it's all over YouTube. But that was so incredible because it got down as low as about 80 miles above the lunar surface. And what you saw then, they fired a rocket, now moving it out. It's exiting out of the sphere of influence of the moon. I believe that happened uh, last evening at around 11.31 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it's going on what we call a retrograde orbit, opposite the direction that the moon is, is actually turning. And what's interesting about this, no spacecraft has ever gone as far, meaning a, a human-capable spacecraft. Apollo 13 did this a long time ago when it safely made it back to the moon, almost barely, I mean, back to the Earth. But this rocket will go about another 40,000 miles above the moon and swing back one more time and use that kind of a little kick you know, the swing around gravity assist of the moon to get back to the Earth. But I find this so fascinating because here we are, you know, we haven't done this since Apollo 8, even though there are three dummy or mannequins on board. But this is just mind-boggling, and I hope everybody stays in touch on the video side of this because there's so much to talk about what's going on in the capsule and what's happening outside. But there's also a tiny spacecraft, Frank, that's a little tiny thing called a CubeSat called Capstone, and it also is in orbit, tracking out this or measuring out this orbit that they're going to take, because eventually they're going to build a space station called Gateway. And this time, the astronauts who go to the surface of the moon will have the luxury, at least that's what I think, if they need supplies or something, going from the lunar surface back up to the Gateway space station, you know, take a shower, have something to eat, get everything together, and then make the journey back to the Earth. So all this is purposeful, and it's just magic, it seems like, though, don't you think? That other, uh, certainly. That other vehicle, uh, Capstone, that other spacecraft's Capstone, where mm -hmm. is that at, uh, at the moment? Is that traveling in concert with Artemis, or is that something that's coming later? No, it's actually in orbit, not, not riding side by side. It's actually in orbit. I think it went into orbit, and if I'm not sure, I'll be honest always, but I know it went into orbit, at least that's what I believe I read just a couple of days ago, but it's so tiny, it's the size of a microwave oven. That's how small that little spacecraft is. And also, another great thing that this particular uh, Orion spacecraft did, it deployed about 10 little CubeSat spacecraft. In other words, they're all going to have little missions and tracking, and I believe one of them is actually supposed to go to the surface of the moon and do a landing on the surface of the moon. But it's, again, imagine seeing a little thing, if you're flying in space, the size of a microwave oven, the technology behind CubeSats is just so amazing. These are really inexpensive but purposeful little satellites. And so far, it looks like they're doing a pretty good job. I think there's a few that they haven't been able to contact. But overall, wow, those exciting times Absolutely. to be alive. Absolutely. We're talking space with Steve Cates. If you have questions, we'll take them. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So what is our best estimate at this point, Steve, of when Artemis will reach the moon, and I guess the more consequential question is, assuming all goes well, what's the best estimate of when we can return a manned mission to the moon? Excellent, because it's all part of the series. Artemis II, when it does launch, sometime, hopefully in 2024, same rocket, you know, but this time, three astronauts on board, they will make a, circum a circumnavigation of the moon. They'll further test out the systems on this particular Orion spacecraft. Which, by the way, is a joint venture, the capsule itself and the rest of the you know, body of the spacecraft. The European Space Agency, I believe, has the primary responsibility for the backward part you know, that attaches to the, the capsule itself. But in this Orion capsule, it's like a, you know, one on steroids of the original Apollo capsule. It should be able to at least hold at least seven astronauts capable. And then beyond that, we'll hopefully go. And this timeline is very fuzzy right now, Frank. Nobody actually has a definitive date. But if all this goes well, maybe as early as 2025, the first crew that will actually go down to the surface of the moon 
land there. And they've already mapped out, that is NASA, a whole bunch of locations on the surface of the moon at the south pole of the moon. I believe there's about 10 or 12 locations. So things are getting exciting. So I would say if all goes well, maybe by 2025, and who knows, maybe they'll push it back a year to 2026, we'll have the first female astronaut, that's what they're telling us, and also another crew to go to the surface of the moon and then eventually build a small habitat maybe on the surface and hopefully gateway gets built. So we'll have maybe the possibility of having like a little hotel in space mm. around the moon. Fingers crossed. That would be uh, that would be absolutely terrific. Hey, will we hit, meaning we the planet, with an asteroid four days ago? Absolutely. And this is another great story. I mean, all this great space news. Now we go into this one. A small object alleged to be about maybe two feet in diameter. And this is the part that I get really excited about. And people should, of course, think, wow, you know, these scientists, when their predictions, this time, a tiny little object, this was discovered a few hours before it actually intercepted the Earth. It was done out here in, the, in Arizona, Mount Lemmon Observatory. The astronomers there, maybe one very lucky astronomer, detected an object on one of his photographic plates. And he said, let's do a calculation size-wise and where it's going to come down. So the short story is the object was said to come back and hit the Earth, and I say hit the Earth, in about maybe three or four hours. So what they did, they worked out the calculations. They stated that it would probably enter the Earth's atmosphere above, let's say, Portland and Oregon, travel over the top of the United States. And what it did, Frank, on schedule the prediction was that it would probably enter the atmosphere around 3.25 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the 19th. And maybe lucky observers, I don't know how well they're doing, God bless them with all the tons of snow that they've got there. It was captured above all places on the big CN Tower in Toronto. It has this little you know, webcam, I guess, that goes and shows you the tower. Right down smack dab in the middle of the field, you see this. And now, at least astronomers are saying that this object, probably when it disintegrated, some say it actually popped in the air, because that's what a bolide does, you know, brighter than the full moon, maybe way brighter than the full moon. So I don't know for sure, but there's a strewn field. Some of it's in the lake. I guess that's Lake Ontario. And also some particles on the ground. But what's really interesting about this, the asteroid had the designation then. It no longer exists. It was asteroid 2022 WJ1. And to give the short answer, they named these asteroids, of course, during time of the year, all kinds of things, down to days and hours. But isn't that amazing? It's only the sixth time in history that we have astronomers predicting an asteroid that's coming only hours before that the object is not going to miss the Earth, but it's going to hit it. And this particular object, no one knows for sure. It could have been three feet, maybe four feet in diameter. I'll go with the smaller side. But what this particular object is probably like, and it's very interesting, it's more like a chondrite, meaning it's a rocky metal, you know, iron, nickel, iron kind of a meteor. But those parts are precious. So if anybody, and of course this radio station signal and where you are around the country, if anybody is uh, interested in this, what would you find? It's, and here, here's a luck, there's a little bit of luck in this. Anytime you're looking for meteors, I would want to be in Antarctica or the pole because it's pretty much laden with snow and ice. So what color are meteors? I don't see any white-crusted meteors. So anything that you see in a field that's covered with snow, and it looks strange, it would have a burnt crust on it. And it's not dangerous to touch. I mean, obviously, if it just came down, I wouldn't go near it because it's still hot. But it's interesting. It's almost kind of reminiscent of what happened, though it was a bigger on a much larger scale, when the Russian Chelyabinsk asteroid body came through the Earth back in February the 15th of 2013. That then was 66 feet in diameter. It actually caused damage to over 7,200 buildings, and 1,500 people were actually injured, not because the asteroid you know, broke up and they got hit in the head with a piece of it, but the shock wave was just so powerful that it disintegrated so many of the building's windows, and it's amazing. Wow. videos. Oh, yeah, this is incredible. And here is where it came from. That Chelyabinsk, not the one we're just talking about, the little tiny one, but imagine seeing a 66-foot-in-diameter piece of nickel iron burning hot. I mean, literally, you wouldn't want to touch it, obviously. It came 15 degrees from the direction of the sun on that morning. And it had the explosive force. Here, here's, this is an actual fact here. That it had the explosive force of 500 kilotons. Now, if you go on the scale of nuclear weapons, we go back to Hiroshima. 
Maybe if we're lucky at the time, they detonated that with an explosive force of probably, and I'm being on the high side, maybe about 13 or 14 kilotons. So could you imagine from something only 66 feet across, you got the residual you know, effect, the blast effect of something about a 500 kiloton type of a nuclear device. But the energy is different, of course. You know, it's not something that has nuclear material on board. But I sure wouldn't want to be the heck in the way of that. Thing. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. But if... the yeah, the two footer that came over Canada or over, I think it's actually closer. If you go from Niagara Falls, I've been up there many times. You drive on, I think that's QEW freeway, and just as you get before you get to Hamilton and swing around the lake to go to Toronto, that area just a little bit, I believe, to the east of. Uh, I'm trying to think Hamilton is probably the area. I forget the exact name of the city, but if anybody's listening to us there right now, if you notice anything that's rocky and uh, looks like it's burnt, like it has a burnt crust on it, uh, especially if it's lying in a snowfield, you might have a piece of that. Hmm. It'd be interesting to find one. Uh, that's for sure. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you want to listen to the Dr. Sky Experience, a terrific podcast ex- with some great interviews and some great uh, commentary, you can go to wabcradio.com slash Dr. Sky. If you want to check out the Dr. Sky blog, you can go to ktar.com. And if you have uh, questions about uh, subjects that we don't get to in the course of the hour. You can also just email him at drskyshow at uh, gmail.com. Squeeze in a few quick questions here, and then I have many others. Steve sure. is on Long Island. Hello, Steve. Hey, Frank. Hey. And good morning. Dr. Sky. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, I hope you guys are well. I don't mean to get into, like, conspiracies and all that. I wanted to ask Dr. Sky's opinion on William Milton Cooper, how... Uh, you know, we only see one side of the moon at all times. And he said something back many years ago about a face on the back of the moon. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm just curious of his opinion. Well, no, you bring up no, you bring up some good points, though. But I think it's interesting. We've mapped the entire surface of the moon right now. And it's actually strange, Steve, because the surface of the moon on the front side that we see, the near side, it has the reminiscent things of different faces if you look at those seas on the moon. But the problem with the other side of the moon, the, as we call it correctly, the far side, not the dark side, and I don't mean to be particular here, there's really not that many areas on that side of the moon that would even give us any indication of any kind of shapes of anything. In other words, it's mostly cratered, and it really would be kind of boring if we had that side of the moon facing us. We're lucky we have the near side, but uh, not any much more I could add to that one. 800-848-9222. Gus is in Manhattan. Hello, Gus. Hey, I was uh, hey, it was Gus. How, how you good doing, morning. guys? Hey, I, good morning. I was in the Bronx. I was in the Bronx yesterday. I think yeah, yesterday, like around three forty, and I saw the meteoroid. Wow! I was like, what the hell is that? I was like, holy cow! Wow, you saw it. And it disintegrated. <laughs> yeah, I was driving. I was going home, and it disintegrated right in front of me. I was like, what? Oh. I thought it was a UFO, but it was uh, <laughs> it was the meteor. Yeah, I was well, like, oh, shit, that was so cool. You know, Gus, that's yeah. awesome because very few people get to see these things, and most of them are captured, guys. Guess where most of these are captured? On doorbell cameras now. <laughs> you know, people have all these technology things. But, hey, count yourself. And uh, if we had an award, I'd give Gus one because, hey, that, yeah, that's a pretty the, good over, testimonial. <laughs> over I love Bronx, it. Over, over the Bronx and Yonkers, that's where it was. That's where it happened. It was like a second, just a second. I was like, I just caught it. I was like, holy cow, that was so awesome. Yeah. See, Gus, that's yeah. great. Keep your, What do we say here, right, Frank? Keep your eyes to the skies, Gus. Hey, thanks for exactly. that report. Gus, thank you. Hey, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. A number of other areas we're going to, going, we're going to get into with Dr. Sky throughout the hour, including some interesting happenings with the James Webb Space Telescope, both in space and here on Earth. We'll get into that and a whole bunch more. If you have questions, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer who studies astronomy, who studies space, who studies aviation, and you can check out his podcast, The Dr. Sp- the, the Dr. Sky Experience, by going to wabcradio.com slash Dr. Sky. Hey, Steve, on the, on the airplane front, uh, there was some interesting news recently that uh, apparently there are plans afoot to build an airplane with the largest wingspan in history. Is that accurate? Well, it is accurate, and it's actually something interesting to report here. It's actually a real live aircraft, and this is something that's really been around for a while. And I want to describe this. Uh, Mr. Allen, who was a big part of Microsoft before he passed away. Paul Allen. Paul Allen, he, yes. He, he wanted to develop something very quiet. He was quiet about this, and they really put their uh, you know energies to building this largest aircraft. So here it is. We always refer back in history to the spruce goose, you know, that Howard Hughes had built and flew one time back in November of 1947 in the Long Beach Harbor. That had a wingspan of 320 feet. But the one that Scaled Composites has built, and people can go on the web and just look at this. It's so amazing. It's a twin fuselage aircraft called a Stratolaunch. And they just don't build these things just to have a record of a big wingspan. There's a big purpose behind it, and that is to eventually launch satellites into space and rocket-powered, you know, rocket propulsion to get a satellite into orbit. But here it is. This particular vehicle, amazing. I'd love to see it. We may actually take a trip out there and, as media and go to do a little interview on it. But Stratolaunch has the now largest wingspan in the entire world, 352 feet wingspan from one end to the other. So larger than a football field. But what's amazing about this, it's a twin fuselage aircraft with six jet engines on it. And a lot of people for the longest time, and it's very sad to report this, I think from the aviation world, people know about this. But the Antonov Bureau, the design bureau in Russia, this really goes to the credit of the Ukrainians. They had the largest transport aircraft ever built, the Antonov 225, which sadly, because of the war with Russia and the Ukraine, sadly, imagine this, how sad, they went into the hangar and literally, you know, placed shape charges on there, like explosives, like grenades, and blew that thing to smithereens. But on the positive side, the story is that Paul Allen's dream of something to build the largest wingspan aircraft in the world, a jet aircraft called Strato Launch, that would be quite amazing to see coming into a local airport, don't you think? Oh, that, is, uh, that is for sure. Just to give people some perspective, your average uh, jet, your average 747 that you might hop on a flight from New York mm-hmm. to Chicago or sure. um, you know, Florida to Las Vegas, how big is one of those, the wingspan of one of those airplanes? Approximately 230 feet. And if you look at that aircraft, I mean, now Boeing apparently is not building on the assembly line. If you talk to a lot of people in the aviation world, Look and see how many airlines are actually flying 747s. They're not because, well, they were some of the most amazing aircraft ever built. And I remember we had an interview a long, long time ago when I was talking about the history of Boeing and the aircraft that are built for those listeners out there that know so much about the Seattle area and Everett and Boeing Field near near downtown uh, you know, Seattle. We had an interview with a gentleman named Joe Sutter. Now, who's Joe Sutter? He was the designer of the Boeing 747. So we had this archive of aviation, you know, and I was just a guest. I mean, I was just like, wow, here's a guy that not only designed it, he developed it. The city of Everett was the very first 747. And I think they go up to the big extended stretch cargo version now. But most airlines, Frank, have opted for the, you know, fuel efficiency to go with the 777s. And let's not forget another of the giant aircraft in the world. I've never flown one. But I've seen them at the Los Angeles at the LAX airport in Los Angeles, the Airbus A three eighty, and maybe I'm I'm well I'm confident that many listeners out there have flown on it. It's a most amazing twin double deck aircraft, not like a seven forty seven that has just a short bulge on the upper deck. This thing has a continuous upper deck, but it's so massive that certain airports in the world couldn't even land there because their structure of the runway, they would have dropped all the tires on the ground and cracked the runway as it's going down. So their efficiency now is to go to these, you know, more efficient jet engines like 777s. But uh, 747s, I love them. And that was our Sophia plane that we flew in before they retired that. It was a special version that Boeing built in the 1970s called the Boeing 747 SP, a shorty version of the 747. And I'll never forget the great times we had on Sophia going up in the air for 13 hours 
with the 100-inch telescope up there. I'll never forget that, Frank. That was great. One of the things I really always love to do whenever you're on, and uh, apparently a lot of the listeners get a lot out of this, is ask you what's worth seeing in the night sky. You call it the Uh, live sky update or the live sky report. What can people look forward to seeing? A lot of people may get uh, a four-day weekend uh, this weekend because of uh, Thanksgiving and Black Friday. If they have some extra time and maybe can stay up a little later and stare into the night sky, what should they be looking for? Well, here we go. Kind of a quick synopsis. Right now, we find the moon is new. So this is interesting, meaning there's no light of the moon. And what we call this moon is a new supermoon, not like new in the sense meaning like new moon type, not just new that it's never been around. But the point is, this and the next few days are good if you're looking for faint sky facts. So what we'll start off with, Frank, is the planetary objects. The planet Mercury in early December is going to start coming back into the evening sky. Most people have never seen it. Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, may be one of the stars of the great story of the star of Bethlehem and the Christmas star. That'll slowly come into the sky. But for this weekend, just simply look high into the south at sunset. Naked eye will show Saturn over 900 million miles from your eye. But the easy one, if you miss that, just to the left, as the sun is setting, just look up there. The bright white object in the sky is not a UFO, it's Jupiter. And it now is over 400 million miles away from your eye. Telescopes and binoculars show a great amount of detail. But the big one, Frank, is the planet Mars, the red god of war. It rises right around 7 p.m. in the northeast. So that's that yellowish-orange object that you see. Mars is creeping close to the Earth right now. It gets closest to us on the, on the morning of the 7th of December. And for the good part of the listening audience out there, I don't know if the New York area has this, but we'll have much more posted at the Dr. Sky Experience on our podcast. This is interesting. The full moon that occurs on December the 7th, what will happen then is for people across much of the United States and North America, you will see the moon eclipse Mars when it's brightest in the sky. So if you see it with the naked eye, you can go, oh, look at that, and all of a sudden the moon will hide it for an hour. But the other thing is, Frank, since everybody hopefully can get out there this weekend, this is fireball season. So if you look into the night sky, just like we talked about a few minutes ago with the big fireball, there's more and more of these fireballs that come through the month of November because there's a number of these meteor streams that intersect the Earth. So what is it? Eyes to the skies, you'll have no moon to interfere. So if you live in an area where you can get away from city lights, but even city dwellers can watch those planets. Now, that is uh, pretty neat. You have questions, you can call in 800-848-9222. One of the issues that I've been very curious about my whole life, and we've spent a great deal of time talking about on the radio, has been the idea of whether or not there are extraterrestrials out there anywhere and whether or not they visited this planet. And uh, it was interesting last week, uh, some NASA scientists came out with this revision of something they call the great filter theory, which says uh, in words or substance that uh, we probably are alone in the universe and that there probably have been all sorts of other civilizations, but they end up uh, blowing themselves up planet of the ape style before they can end up visiting other planets. Curious if you saw that and if you did, did. what your reaction to it was. Oh, I did, Frank. And it's very interesting. You know, this this big, this big great filter that many astronomers and astrophysicists believe, well, we sent all these signals out. And the intention is that these space civilizations, if extraterrestrials are out there, they don't want to communicate with us. But the new theory, as you just mentioned accurately, is that maybe they have never lived that long, and they got to a level of technology where they destroyed our, where they excuse me, destroyed themselves. So again, if you don't learn from history, I guess that would be the line. We're all you know sad to repeat the same thing again. But that's very interesting because if you look at the on the cosmic scale. Our sun is an average-sized star. It's a middle-aged star, and we're not going into too much detail. There's a large area in the stellar evolution called this particular thing where the, where the stars all form on the thing called a main sequence. And what's interesting about that, we lie along the main sequence. So if we're looking for an Earth-like planet, should it be most likely because we're the only one we've found around a sun-like star? But we're finding out that it's more likely, that is astronomers and astrophysicists, that life might abound around these very tiny end-of-life stars called red dwarfs. And people would imagine and say, well, wait a minute, I thought you need all this light and energy to live in a habitable zone. 
But let's be careful for what we wish for, because there's a number of these star systems that astronomers have found, like the Gliese system that's out there. One of the Gliese systems that the astronomers have detected have seven major planets, they think, right around it. And it's not powered by a super bright sun-like star. It's powered by a, a red dwarf star. And theoretically, there's objects that are, lie within an area that would be consistent with life. So who knows? Maybe, maybe this theory is right about the great filter that, well, they all couldn't get along either. And maybe that's why there seems to be nobody knocking back when we bang three times on the door. 800-848-9222. Bob is in Yonkers. Bob, you're on with Steve Cates. Good morning. Scott, I got a question for you. As you know, China has a very aggressive space program. Oh, yes. They should get to the moon first. Can they legally claim the planet for themselves? Well, they can try, and there's this whole thing about space law, and I'm not an attorney, but I can just report to you this much, Bob. No, they they can do whatever they want, and maybe that's where hostilities would grow in the future. Let's hope not. I want to be an eternal optimist. So America, when it landed on the surface of the moon, as we do know many times, you know, 12 astronauts went there. We didn't decide to make it the, what, another state of the United States. So they don't have any legal authority to do that. But I think they're all too smart to even try a trick like that, because basically what I think a lot of these nations want to do, America included, is they want to look at the possibility. This is a big business, Bob, that's going to come up here. And I've been reading a lot about this, and I think you've seen it, Frank, Mm -hmm. the whole moon economy. Uh, you know, but now Bob may have a good point, because what if now one of the countries like China decides to start mining? What do we do about mineral rights? And, and then this could escalate into further problems, because, again, it's probably going to be all about money, because you're going to harvest some material on the surface of the moon, gentlemen, that we call helium-3. And again, that could be a fuel in which could power so many things here on the Earth and on the surface of the moon and do it with little investment. But you have to enrich it if you bring it back to the earth. So, Bob, you bring up a good point, but they can't claim it for themselves. I, I want to follow up on the the mining aspect and the material aspect mm-hmm. of lunar exploration in in a minute or two. But just as far as the claiming the moon goes, I remember after America made it to the moon, beating the Soviet Union there, which was a, a big coup, there were a bunch of countries that were signatories to an international agreement that said uh, that the moon would not be used for colonization by one country or something along those lines is to the best of your knowledge uh, Mm -hmm. with the with the proviso as you stated that you're not an attorney uh, do you know if china was a signatory to that agreement i don't i don't honestly know that frank and i think the best example is and what bob brought up very fascinating uh, you know question the point is look at antarctica I mean, obviously, we've had explorers, mostly American, Danish. We've had a few others, of course, Russian and then Soviet uh, explorers. But if you look at Antarctica, it's not like one place or one country owns it. In the 1940s or late 30s, actually, Hitler tried to go out and dominate the (laughs) – this is crazy. They tried to dominate Antarctica and name it, you know, in honor of the Reich, that it would be another part of their homeland. Well, simply you cannot do that. But I think that's something I should be looking into, too, and all of us out there, that, you know, this is going to be a big business, which we're talking about is this moon economy. And if you have an economy, you're going to have to have regulations. So we're probably looking into the future. Uh, how do we how do we you know measure that and, and, and how do we monitor that and make it all peaceful? And that's the word, peaceful. We don't mm-hmm. want a war on the moon. Imagine oh, somebody saying they're going to nuke the moon. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Yeah, no, I can't imagine what that would do to the waves. If, right. if people have questions, uh, give us a call, 800-848-9222. Let me ask you about the James Webb Space Telescope before we sure. get to some of the fascinating images that we're seeing, courtesy mm-hmm. of the James Webb Space Telescope. Let me ask you about some of the controversy involved in the name James Webb. Uh, James Webb was a NASA administrator, and, yes. and it was reported recently that apparently he might have been discriminating against some people because of their their sexual orientation and he might right. have been involved in some firings of employees based on their sexual orientation this has created a whole fervor and Chanda Prescott Weinstein who describes herself as a black mm-hmm. queer cosmologist she mm-hmm. spoke to NPR about the need to rename the James Webb telescope I really just want to see rationale and I want to see openness and right now we're not seeing either and that breaks my heart 
And as of now, NASA has said they are sticking with James Webb, the name, and they're not going to change it. Do you think, what does the historical record show about what kind of a person James Webb was? And do you think he's going to be able to keep his name on this telescope? Well, honestly, simply this. I'm always honest. I wasn't around during the time he was the administrator. But so many people out there, as the lady who was just on there, as you reported to us, and we we heard the comment, there's so many people out there that say, I mean, there's some, I don't know how accurate it is, that he was a misogynist, you know, he had a hateful way toward women and discriminated against minorities. I don't know that. But I think NASA is going to keep that particular name, right or wrong. But then again, we could, you know, go and split hairs on many other objects that were named in honor of people. How deep do we have to go into people's backgrounds? And very simply, I don't condone that kind of behavior, but uh, you're not really talking about me, are you? So there you go. (laughs) This is true. 800-848-9222. You talk about the moon and the opportunity for uh, commercial benefit there. And, And a lot of folks are saying that the successful moon rocket launch last week could be a boon for private companies. They're saying as the global economy, uh, the global economic growth slows, space and lunar exploration specifically could become a source of ignition for all sorts of new ventures, all sorts of new jobs. And uh, there's all sorts of plans by both the private sector and by governments internationally to tap into the commerce of the moon. Oh, yeah. What exactly could... Um, could we see on this planet in terms of material riches, courtesy of lunar travel? Well, Frank, in addition to people talking about a green economy, I think there's also a great opportunity, which may be you know, very realistic to some people. Once we get to the moon, and I'm going to project this out, it's not something that we're going to be talking about probably not until a decade or more, but mining materials on the surface of the moon. We know that the moon, and this is Harrison Schmidt, one of the, the, the only geologists to ever go to the moon on Apollo 17, and he's been you know, clamoring for this for years, even when he was a U.S. senator. He made a statement in saying that you know, if we could harvest this isotope called helium-3 on the moon, what is it? It's enriched in the soil of the lunar surface because there's no atmosphere to speak of. So the sunlight, with all the neutrinos and all the particles that come from the sun, it energizes a lot of this material in the surface of the moon. And without going into a long dissertation, if you were able to scoop it up, you know, kind of like a water desalination plant in the way. You take an ingredient and you do something to it to remove something. But in this case, you're harvesting it. And it could actually be a fuel of the future to power things. How clean is it? I think it's very clean. And they've, they've got, you know, scholars on this whole subject that talk at length. You know, books are written on this. So there itself could be a, you know, a whole, a whole growth industry for the moon economy. And then also, you know, it usually starts off with very wealthy people. In addition to going to the International Space Station and the Gateway, there could be, hopefully, and this is way into the future, maybe another 50 years, a lunar tourism thing that you, your family, and little Carmine who's celebrating, you know, first birthday, he has the best chance to do it and go to the surface of the moon as a tourist. Now, wouldn't that be a dream for Carmine? Uh, that's for sure. He seems uh, to to be really into staring at ceiling fans. Wow. So he really likes looking up and seeing things that spin. So I don't know that he's quite grasped the moon yet, but he does like lights, <laughs> and he does like ceiling fans. So once he gets his uh, head around what the moon is, forget about it. It's just going to blow his mind. We're going to continue with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. If you want to check out his podcast, and uh, see a lot of the other stuff that he's covered, even beyond the world of space and astronomy. Some great interviews on there, some great commentary on there. You can go to wabcradio.com slash Sky, just D-R-S-K-Y. You can also check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. We're going to continue. We'll take your questions in just a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's just another night And I'm staring at the moon I saw a shooting star and thought of you I sang a lullaby by the waterside I knew if you were here you're on the other side 
by Ed Sheeran. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, we list all of our bumper music in our Facebook group. Uh, Just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters, or just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Continuing our conversation with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you have questions, we'll take them, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Vinny in New Jersey. Hello, Vinny. Hey, how you doing there, Frank? I'm well. Hey, good. Good morning, Vinny. How you doing, Mr. Sky? Doing my good. Uh, doing well, thanks. Well, by listening to your show, uh, I've learned that the Earth is the third planet from the sun and the fifth largest largest planet and the densest major body in the solar system. My question is, do that the oxygen in Earth's atmosphere is produced and maintained by biological process. Without life, there would be no oxygen. Do you feel, because of the rapid extinction of wildlife and the deforestry and the destructive elements going into the sea, like plastics, mm-hmm. is there a possibility that that uh, Earth could run out of oxygen? Well, no, I don't, Vinny, and I'm being an optimist here, too. I mean, my answer is honest. We've had great extinctions in the world, and we talked about this a while ago on other shows, 500 million years ago, there was a problem where the Earth had a lack of oxygen. Something caused it, whether it was an asteroid impact or what have you. But it looks like the Earth is pretty solid in its ability to produce you know, oxygen. But let's look at the whole shebang. Let's take the Earth if it was the size of a little apple. The troposphere in which the weather, the weather sphere, which is the oxygen sphere, if you look at it, it's so precious, and we're just hoping and praying that we keep it, and I think we will. It would be the thickness of the skin on the apple. Isn't that incredible? So I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I think that, you know, obviously we don't want to see pollution, and I know we have plenty of it. But the oxygen in this particular planet should remain constant or at least grow. And obviously we need more plants out there to continue to pump out what they produce by taking in CO2 and pushing out oxygen. That takes a bowl to rough my shoulders. Yes, sir. Well, happy Thanksgiving. Happy first. Thanksgiving, you too, buddy. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Yeah, you uh, got it. Well said. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Let me also ask you about um, what what the local group of galaxies that we're seeing. We're seeing some interesting images, courtesy of the James Webb Telescope, and uh, they look to me and a lot of untrained eyes as yeah. a lot of pretty pictures, but. Apparently, there's actually some pretty significant scientific significance to these images, oh, yes. including a, a, the local group of galaxies and what might lie beyond them. What do we know about some of these images that we're seeing, and what are we learning about the not just our galaxy, but other galaxies? Well, let's go to the James Webb images, one of the most amazing images yet. It was an object called Glass Z12. It's a categorization like a group of scientists that put these names out there. Why is this so important? It's been able to peer with its giant 21-foot mirror all the way back to after the big expansion. I tend to call it the big expansion, not necessarily the Big Bang. Only 350 million years after the shebang started to expand. So that's really peering in almost to ground zero, to speak. But this whole thing about local group, I just wanted to give this very quickly. The Milky Way, one galaxy, which if you were to see how long it takes the sun to go around the galaxy. Uh, we, we go around the, earth, around the sun every year, right? It takes 260 million years for our star to go around this big pinwheel. That grouping of stars, the Milky Way, probably has maybe 200 billion stars, maybe more. I don't know. But we're part of a local group of galaxies, like a cluster of them outward. There's about 80 of those, Frank, in that cluster, and they go out to well over 10, 20 million light years. The Andromeda Galaxy is part of that, and there's a whole bunch of these little dwarf galaxies that lie within that. But then it gets more interesting. The next bigger set beyond that is something called the Virgo Supercluster, and that contains millions of more galaxies surrounded around something. And then, yeah, you bet, it gets even more interesting. There's something which is even larger than that, 
another subsystem or set above it called the Laniakia supercluster, which is probably like we're talking about billions of light years out in the universe. So we're a tiny part of a gigantic system. We know that. And obviously, yet to date, to this date, we haven't found one planetary object as close to the Earth that now has what, Frank? Eight billion registered people on the Earth? I don't know if they're all registered, but (laughs) they're there. I don't know what they'd register for. But it's amazing how precious the universe really is. And obviously, I'm I'm in a more of a sentimental mode for giving thanks for Thanksgiving. We all have things to be thankful for, the ones we love those that have passed on to the infinite, and for any other thing that you want to be thankful for. But I'm thankful for something else, and I think many are too, that we live in this vast cosmos, an amazing array. We have no answers to things out there, and we're still searching every day to learn more about it. And as we say with John Katsimatidis, when we do on, you know, grateful to be on his programs, we talk about what? Opening people's minds so that they can learn so much more and maybe take a break from the hectic nature of what we see in this world today. Absolutely. So I like to have well it said. as a positive. Well said on all. Uh, let me ask you about this story a couple of days ago from SpaceNews.com. Headline, Space Force opens the door to Blue Origin with a new cooperative agreement. Apparently, the U.S. Space Systems, uh, Space Systems Command announced on November 18th mm-hmm. that it had signed an agreement with Blue Origin that paves the way for the company's new Glenn rocket to compete for national security launch contracts once it completes the required flight certification. What exactly are these two entities um, partnering on? And then in the amount of – before we run out of time, I'm wondering if sure. you could speak more broadly about whether you think the future of space travel and space exploration is going to be dominated by the public sector, agencies like NASA, Space Force, or the other international equivalents, or whether it's going to be the private sector, uh, private companies like Blue Origin, like Virgin, like sure. the uh, Jeff Bezos company. What, what do you think? Well, there was a big fight to answer the first part of this. It's interesting. There was a big legal fight between Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk with, of course, SpaceX. So what's happening is there's going to be, and rightfully so. I mean, Bezos has some powerful rockets that he's looking to build, too. And the answer to the rest of the question is, yes, I think this privatized area is going to overtake anything that NASA can do. And not to take thunder away from them. It's that they have the most powerful rocket in the world now albeit they've had some delays. They did it right. As Bill Nelson said, we don't launch any rocket before it's time. And those are not the exact words, but you get the point. So I think you're going to see so much out there in the private area. We're seeing some cooperation now with uh, what the Space Force has got. They have this little X-37 space plane. That's something that NASA has built and some other private contractors. But I think that is going to be the future. And I think if we can all link this up, this moon economy could be a big boon for the Earth, not necessarily right around the corner. But remember, they didn't build those rockets just to go to the moon. Lots of people want to go to Mars, and if your skies are clear, wherever you're listening to the other side of midnight right now, that orangey object that's up in the sky, depending on where you live, that's Mars. And that's the next destination for humans. And it looks like it'll happen probably within the next 10 years or maybe even sooner if some people have their way. Yeah, uh, one of the guys that has been leading and uh, the the charge for going to Mars and maybe colonizing it has been Buzz Aldrin, certainly one of the great oh, pioneers yeah. of the space program sure. in interviews and in things that he's written. And again, even as an advanced-aged octogenarian, the guy seems to have more energy than almost anybody I know. He has been incredibly vocal about... Sure. Uh, America pursuing Martian travel. And you you seem to be pretty optimistic that we'll see it. I do. And I really think that's a big thing, not just to be positive for the moment, positive for the long haul. Obviously, there's criticisms about anything. Look at the explorers like Columbus. I'm sure there were people that say, yeah, what are you wasting your time going across the ocean? There's nothing out there but sharks, you know, maybe sea monsters. Nobody knew what was there. But simply, and I don't mean to sound overly dramatic, I believe it's distinctly in our DNA to be explorers, Obviously, Stephen Hawking said this in in, in his voice that he had, which wasn't his natural voice. That's simply this. We need to look at getting off this planet for many reasons and hopefully to explore, not conquer, to explore the universe and make life as we know it, uh, maybe even better than we have it today. And I think it'll be done not only by spacecraft, but things like artificial intelligence that would blow our minds. Because guess what? The last thing that Steve Jobs ever said as he passed on to the infinite, and I quote, 
wow, wow, oh wow. Imagine what lies beyond this particular world and the things that we can explore. You know, Steve, when I was a a child, I was a big fan of uh, professional wrestling. And one of the things that was very frustrating to me is that you would, especially if you didn't have cable, you were limited to uh, essentially only being able to watch pro wrestling for one hour a week. Right. So I would spend the whole rest of my week trying to find different ways that I could watch wrestling. Right. Uh, And it was very, very, very difficult. Now, I imagine there are people in our audience that are similarly interested in space. Now, we've mentioned a few places that they could go for more space content. Uh, WABCradio.com slash Dr. Sky. Space.com. Spacenews.com. Axios does an interesting space newsletter. You mentioned NASA TV. But if somebody is just addicted to this stuff, where's uh, another good resource that they can go for feeding their space addiction? Well, that's a great question. Here's one that's up at our Dr. Sky blog and our podcast, and that is go to heavens-above.com. And here's another great one as we close. Spaceweather.com. They report the news about more of things that people want to see in the sky. And it's always a pleasure, Frank. Happy Thanksgiving to you and the listeners. And happy birthday to little Carmine. Thank you, Steve. We'll talk again soon. It is always a treat. Uh, check out the Dr. Sky blog, KTAR.com. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.